Welcome, everyone, to the Mindful Matters Podcast by the Blue Matter Project. My name is Elaine Clark, your host and lead facilitator. This podcast brings together practitioners, thought leaders, teachers, and inspiring individuals on how to best support your mental health and well-being. A few months ago, I came across an acclaimed psychotherapist who is honest, connection-driven, and grounded in experience and credentials. If you're someone who is ready to do the deep dive and open to the possibility of deeper healing, this is the episode for you. I'm so excited to be speaking with Megan Watson today. Megan is a registered psychotherapist and consultant based in Toronto, Canada. She is an experienced clinician and has worked extensively in the fields of eating disorders, complex mood, anxiety, and trauma. She is a self-compassion advocate, a dedicated book lover, a passionate therapist, and is working closely with clients and organizations to support them in creating sustainable, mindful, and insightful driven change. On this episode today, we talk about a number of things. We talk about how her experiences have influenced her journey. We touch on what trauma really is and how we can learn from and integrate our own experiences to create new narratives. And we also talk about how we can navigate trauma with psychotherapy. Megan, I am so thrilled to have you here today. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. So I've been following you for quite some time now, and I would love it if we could first start off with your journey. Can you take us back to how and why you evolved on this very specialized path? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wish there was a more poetic version of this story, but um, I came by this path really honestly. Um, It started with my clinical degree. So early on in my career as a student, I had the opportunity to work in some really amazing treatment centers, eating disorder treatment centers, LGBTQ affirming healthcare centers over in the US. Um, And there um, I did a lot of amazing work and I worked with some some incredible clinicians that really informed um, my approach and and empowered me to kind of choose my own path and, and to be specialized in the way that I was starting to realize that I was becoming. Um, when I returned to Canada, I, I started working um, in supporting individuals with mood disorders, anxiety disorders, complex PTSD. And during all of that, I just became super passionate about helping people navigate, you know, the big feelings, the big stuff, and exploring and understanding that their past um, can really influence and and have a bit of a blueprint for for what shows up today. So I noticed that was something that was seen on a huge spectrum um, and that, you know, a lot of people could really relate to feeling like they couldn't control aspects of their lives, whether that was moodiness or their relationships with food or, or managing their relationships. And so over time, you know, I think that that initial um, jump into the pool um, in my clinical degree, like as a very young intern, was kind of forming the basis of, of what I'm doing today. I, um, in many ways, I'm doing the exact same work that I did my first day on the job. Mm-hmm. Well, I love your commitment to seeking and finding truth, but also to supporting other people. Um, I think that you know, when we think of the context of healing and specifically healing from traumatic experiences, I think it's rarely a simple process. 
And before we dive into how we can sort of navigate trauma with psychotherapy, I think it's really helpful as a starting point to give some context to this discussion. From your perspective, what is trauma? Yeah, I think trauma is really the the lasting emotional response that that results from living through or experiencing distressing events, right? And so experiencing a traumatic event can harm and and really create a sense of unsafety, um, instability. Um, It can harm a person's sense of self and their ability to regulate their emotions and and navigate um, the relationships they have with others. So, you know, long after the distressing event or the traumatic event occurs, you know, people with trauma can often feel powerless and helpless and shame and as well as intense fear. So trauma is really used to describe the the emotional consequences that come through living through these distressing events um, on an individual. And, And it can be difficult to define because the same event may be more traumatic for some people than for others. But Traumatic events, I I believe, experienced early in life, such as, for example, abuse or neglect or disrupted attachment even, um, can be devastating, right, on your belief system. So, you know, equally challenging can be later life experiences that are out of one's control, such as a serious accident or even a really messy breakup, you know, being a victim of violence, living through a natural disaster or war or pandemic um, or sudden unexpected loss, right? So it really can change depending on the person. Yeah. I love that. That's such a great way to describe it. Um, and I think what can happen after we've experienced a traumatic experience or, you know, maybe we don't even realize it to be traumatic, um, I think what can happen is that we may start to develop these sort of thinking traps um, that we fall into. I would love it if you can expand a little bit on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking traps are really patterns of thought with generally a negative swing, right? You know, they are distortions of our mind that make us believe that the world is something that it really isn't. And, you know, there are a few common thinking traps that I myself, as well as many others fall into, for example, like personalization. So, you know, assuming responsibility for an, for an event that you have no control of an external event, right? You know, if your, your child doesn't pass a test, you might think to yourself, oh my gosh, I should have been helping them prepare more, right? And you may have given them all of the tools to study a quiet space. You may have done everything in your power, but it just may be that that test wasn't great for them that day. And that's not something we can control, right? And so it triggers a lot of guilt and condemnation. Um, I think also a really huge one is all or nothing thinking. I just wanted to say that because it's probably the most common one that I see, like thinking only of possible outcomes at the extremes, like really good or really bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, I love those examples. Are there any other thinking traps that, uh, that maybe you can mention for our listeners today? Yeah. So emotional reasoning, right? So seeing your emotions as truth. I feel worthless. Therefore I am worthless. For example, um, catastrophizing. So kind of circling the drain, as I like to call it, from one negative thought to even more negative thoughts, right? Um, overestimating is another one. Exaggerating the likelihood that something bad will happen without any evidence to prove it. 
um, mind reading, believing that you know what others are thinking and assuming that it's negative, again, without any real evidence. So there's just a lot of different ways that our minds trap us into these thoughts. And as you mentioned, it can be embedded in in our mind through the experiences of trauma. Because if you can imagine, if something really traumatic or distressing happens to you, it the whole concept of trauma is that it changes the way that you see the world. And so when your vision and your experience of the world fundamentally shifts in that way, you're going to develop thought patterns that try to explain and justify why that happened to you. And that's where we get caught up, right? If we don't have any other perspectives to say otherwise. Yeah, I love that. And I often, you know, I often catch myself bowing in awe to the human psyche. There is almost <laughs> there is almost a brilliance to how we develop these protective parts of ourselves in order to cope and function with traumatic experiences. Um, Our patterns of coping can be entirely different from other people as well. So on one extreme, uh, for example, we can have someone who has completely collapsed in themselves. So very, you know, a low self-esteem or low self-confidence. While on the other extreme, someone may have a very overly compensatory, uh, uh, compensatory, uh, or narcissistic, or even a toxic leadership way of compensating. Um, can you expand on this and also talk to us about how psychotherapy can help us better understand how we're individually coping with our traumas? Yeah, no, I love the way that you worded that. Um, I think, you know, the way that I see it is that, Coping with with trauma is so different and unique for everyone. It's like a fingerprint, right? We know what it is when we see it, but everybody has their own. (laughs) And it's totally unique, right? And so psychotherapy, as I see it, is really the tool that allows us to open to these patterns of thinking and patterns of behaving and ways that we engage in relationships with others and ourselves without judgment. Because consider this, right? Like if you have no self-confidence or or self-esteem and you're really struggling with feeling worthy or deserving, you might really feel trapped in, in this thought of judgment and the cycle of shame saying, well, if I'm not worthy at all, then I'm not worthy of talking about it, right? I'm just going to make myself smaller and smaller and smaller. And so kind of opening up the the platform for non-judgment is really a space to kind of tiptoe into the arena and say, okay, I'm feeling this way. Um, and here, I don't really know what I want to do with it yet. I don't really know, you know, what I feel about it. I might not even know all of the experiences that have created this way of thinking, but this allows us to feel safe to explore how our current way of seeing the world may be impacted by these things. And most particularly, I find myself, you know, seeing clients who completely dismiss certain experiences that they've had as impactful. Um, And when we talk about it, the floodgates just burst open on all these little ways that it's affected their belief systems and how they navigate the world. And, and I think that's just fundamentally such a powerful process to bear witness to, right? Because as a therapist, I'm not giving you advice. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not, I'm not trying to say what you think or what you do is wrong, regardless of this impact in your life and your relationships. I think what I'm here to do is to, to really critically, curiously, and compassionately help you see that there's more than one way to look at what's happened in your life. Oof, I love that so much. <laughs> I, I feel that that's exactly 
uh, in my experience, that has been the most powerful part of psychotherapy is uh, it's someone, you know, compassionately shining a light on a different perspective and we can shift our perspective and we realize how maybe narrow-minded we were. Um, Yes. So I think that this all becomes especially important when we consider relationships. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yes. This is, it seems like relationships are the perfect breeding ground for all of this to come up. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You're so right. So right. So when we, when, and I think this is really important when we consider healthy boundaries in relationships and if we didn't know how to properly set those boundaries from our childhood, then all of that sort of gets tested in our romantic relationships. What are some of the signs that we might be struggling with healthy boundaries? Yeah, I think, you know, first things first, I normally will ask people when they say, okay, this relationship, I'm really struggling with this, or I don't know what to do. I'm going to ask them to kind of think about like, if you consider the pie chart of your life, how much of it is spent considering and thinking about what you can do for others rather than what you can do for yourself. And most often than not, if you are struggling with healthy boundaries, that pie chart is going to be heavily skewed towards the external and the outside world rather than the internal. And to me, healthy boundaries, I think a lot of people can, can think about themselves like, oh my God, I can't you know, I can't set a boundary. Like what is wrong with me? Like I can't set this limit. And I don't think there's anything wrong with people who, who really can't, you know, set the boundaries because they're struggling with figuring out what to say, what to do. But, you know, I think it's more related to, okay, how do, how open and how affirmed do I feel to establish that my needs are just as important as the needs of others? And so you might feel obligated to respond. Um, even if you, you cannot um, do something at that time, you might feel like your schedule is always over scheduled, find it really difficult to get a balance. Um, you might be worried constantly about your impact on others and, and how you can help or support them over and above your own needs. And even just being uncomfortable saying no or disappointing others, right? Being able to, to navigate the, the big feeling of disappointment and shame when someone says, well, you weren't there for me. And recognizing that that's their perspective on the situation at hand. And, and what all we can do is to say, you know, I'm really sorry, but here's where my line is. And I'm hoping that we can talk about it, right? So I think almost talking about boundaries is really just giving people permission to, to establish, not that they have to stand up for themselves and just you know put their foot down and stick in the mud, but that they have to, to also acknowledge that they're important too. Yeah. And I think it's important to note also that it's always a work in progress. Yes. Every time I think I'm making progress in establishing strong boundaries, I I'm often I often see myself in a situation where I might be slipping back into old patterns. And I think it's so important to emphasize that our capacity to manage boundaries changes. Uh, it's very fluid and it requires a lot of uh, awareness and introspection. Um, so I thank you so much for sharing that. And I'd love if we can tie this into the 
the impact of chronic invalidation, because as you were saying, it seems like for most of us, our pie chart skews towards, uh, you know, giving more to other people rather than towards ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, How can someone practice rebuilding their sense of self and worthiness to maintain that really strong boundary for themselves? Yeah. So I think one step in healing from, you know, invalidation and, and feeling like your identity and your worthiness has really been eroded over time is to begin to learn about how to validate yourself. Right. And also to let go of the judgment that that means that you're self-absorbed or self-involved. I think that's the most common um, distortion I hear from people when we're working on validating the self is like, well, why should I be talking about myself? Doesn't that mean I'm self-absorbed? Doesn't that mean I'm self-interested? And I think, you know, learning to validate yourself and to then respond to invalidation in a healthy way gives you the foundation to understand your world from a bird's eye perspective rather than just being caught up in the storm. And so learning to give yourself self-compassion, you know, to start exploring and identifying how you really feel rather than relying on the words of others to kind of shift and sway the boat um, of how you feel on a given day, you know, recognizing that that wisdom that you have can be strengthened and only you know how you feel, right? And so kind of taking in and absorbing like a sponge, all of these different words and feelings and experiences from others and then placing them into our life without critical reflection is something that we need to figure out as individuals and constantly work on practicing, strengthening the boundary so that we can figure out first what do I really need to know from this situation? How do I feel? And what's the impact on me short-term and long-term? And then once we have that knowledge, once we have that understanding, we can start to really begin to heal um, and engage in in appropriate self-care, in building community with healthy and supportive people in your life. And so it really is foundational in, in your approach. Yeah. You know, I can almost hear the listener right now thinking, wow, okay, that's, that's me. I maybe struggle with this. Um, what, like, is there a way for us to break the pattern? Is there something that we can do for ourselves to like stop ourselves in that track of, um, you know, that repetitive thought process that we're not, um, that we're not worthy or that we're, um, yeah, like that we're, that we're, that, you know, that sense of chronic invalidation that we have, maybe we have a sense of low self-esteem or we're not worthy. Like how can we stop that pattern in its tracks? I think it's more simple than complicated, right? Sometimes you can literally say out loud or to yourself, if you're in a public place, um, stop, right? You know, um, take a minute, like, I engage in in thought stopping exercises with clients all the time because sometimes these these beliefs can become ruminatory. So you ruminate on them and they can become obsessive in nature. So we feel like we always have to attend to them or to pick them up. And so the question that I think often stops me in my tracks, other than literally saying stop, is asking myself, what's the function of insert behavior here? right? So what's the function of overthinking here? Is it keeping me distracted from getting my work done today? Um, You know, what is the function of feeling unworthy? Is it allowing me to prevent and engaging in appropriate self-care? Is it preventing me from reaching out to someone that I know could maybe um, help me? 
right? And so being honest with yourself to say, what's the purpose of this? And, and non-judgmentally, right? Very curiously, very compassionately asking, you know, what, what role does this play in my life? And that can really shift you out of, you know, the, the constant cycle of this thought and, and these beliefs and put you into, you know, the, the bird's eye perspective, like I said, in looking down at them and observing them before you engage in any action. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that, you know, this idea of like the the sort of obsessive thought pattern. And I think that also we can certainly use certain tools or certain um, practices to help break those patterns. But there's also a point where we just can't do it alone. And that's where I feel like, you know, realizing, okay, you know what, maybe it's best at this point now that I turn to someone else for support. And I think that this sort of ties really nicely into why psychotherapy can be really important. For anyone who is listening right now um, and who might struggle with uh, the idea or the concept of going and seeking professional support, like seeking a a psychotherapist, um, what would you say, what would you say to them in terms of taking the first step? Oh, Good question. I think I would say know that your therapist desperately wants you to know how resilient you really are. Just even by deciding to take the the thought of, okay, maybe I might need help, means that there's a part of you that's fighting for a better way of existing. And people discount that every day. And my like raison d'etre is, you know, not to just step in and and be altruistic and have these ideal beliefs of like, everything's going to be great once you start therapy, because sometimes things fall apart before they get better. But know that your therapist is not going to judge you. Your therapist is going to be the warden to, to guide you to open up, to talk about the hard stuff. And a lot of times people feel like if they open up that Pandora's box, they won't be able to close it. And on top of that, there's the the shame and fear of, of trusting someone to be responsive, to be supportive and caring in helping you heal. And so that's a lot for people to do. And, and I think what I would just say to them is that, you know, whatever your pace is, we we're here for you. Um, we're not here to to pressure you into healing because that's the opposite of what that is, um, or to judge you or to invalidate your experience. We want to just be there for you, present, and kind of pull you into the moment with us, so that the relationship we build as therapist and and client can really be the space and place for you to begin the work in the rest of your life. Yeah. So well said. Thank you so much for saying that. I think it takes a a lot of courage. And I know even for myself, I resisted it for so long and I don't even know why. Uh, There was some barrier, maybe stigma or stereotyping, whatever it was. But I know for myself, the first time I spoke with a therapist, uh, there was a a tangible shift in the way way that I felt physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Um, So- Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, I think that it's, it's so wonderful what you said in terms of, you know, taking that, that next step. And for anybody who is listening right now, uh, who might need support, what is the best way that they can connect with you? 
Yes, of course. You know, um, you can reach me by email at info at bloompsychologyto.com or you can connect with me on Instagram at Thrive with Meg. Yeah. I'm so happy that, you know, we're talking about this because all the questions that you asked are just questions that I hear all the time, right? Like, I, I think it's it's not, um, I think everybody has this very private experience of wondering and worrying and waiting and thinking. And the more that we can just open this up, the more that we can kind of find some collective resilience together. Mm-hmm. Megan, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. This has all been so valuable. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. My pleasure. I'm so grateful I got the chance to chat with you today, Elaine. It's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. The Mindful Matters podcast is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark, edited by Karen Zorzi. Art by Tani Stoiber and music by Bell Woods. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like to support the podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share with your friends and family. Website and resources mentioned in the episode can be found in the episode notes. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Blue Matter Project. No way.